So Psalm 126 is a psalm of ascents. It is the third in our November series that is going to stretch into December and Advent. And there are a number of different theories of why these psalms are called the psalms of ascents. But one of them is that as the pilgrims traveled for three annual festivals up to Jerusalem, they wanted to sing psalms that would uh, prepare them for worship when they got there. And some of these psalms directly fit that theme, including the one that Pastor Amy preached on last week. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. That's obviously what's happening on some level. But I also like the theory that they're just songs that rise, that songs that lift you up into the presence of God, as Pastor Lori read the scripture a few moments ago. So it may not be readily apparent when you read Psalm 126, but it was not written during happy times. And that's very important for understanding what Psalm 126 gives gives to us. When you read it carefully, you you will realize it is written during frustrating times. It's actually written during disillusioning times, and I will come back to that momentarily. But let me just start at the beginning of the psalm, and let's walk through it. So uh, I'm not putting the psalm up on the screen. You'll need your Bible if you want to walk uh, through this with me. But let me just uh, uh, note that the psalm is really divided neatly, in my view, into three sections. There are two verses about the past, there are two verses about the present, and there are two verses about the future. So I would subtitle them, Joy Then, Joy Now, Joy Later. All right, Joy Then, Joy Now, Joy Later, Past, Present, and Future. So verse 1 begins, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. If you have, like I do, a new international version, particularly a newer one, that's your translation. But there's also a footnote that says, When the Lord released the captivity I've been curious all week why captivity and fortunes would be two possible translations of the same word. Somebody in my Bible study pointed out, and I think he's right, that if you think about the word holdings, right, a captive is someone who's held, a fortune is something you hold. So the idea is, whichever way you translate it, that there used to be something that was held and we're asking God to release it or restore it in some way. So reverse the captivity might be a good translation, or restore the fortunes. At any rate, verse 1, it credits God for that. When the Lord reversed the captivity or restored the fortunes of Zion, it was like a dream come true. We thought this can't possibly be true. Now, the, the psalm continues because it's talking about Zion, which is, another, which is basically a synonym for Jerusalem. And what we have is the collective memory of one of the most stunning reversals in all of Jewish history, especially up to that point. So the, the captives either remembered or directly or were reminded by their parents and grandparents what it was like when Jerusalem, the city of God, the city where God made his home, was ransacked and destroyed. And that was accompanied by rape and murder and desecration and uh, blazes, and like there's nothing left of the city. And we thought that God would never do that. Prophets like Ezekiel had told them it would happen, and they didn't believe those prophets because their theory was God would never let God's house be destroyed. But it was. 
So now, 70 years later, the people are coming back home and they're thinking, we never thought we'd get to come home again. We thought that was the end of not only Jerusalem, but it was the end of our story as a people, as a nation. And now there's been a change politically. The Persians are in charge instead of the Babylonians, and they're letting us go home again. This is like a great dream. So one can only imagine the emotions of the returning pilgrims, and there are some who believe that the Psalms of Ascents, or this one in particular, was written for that particular journey up to Jerusalem, the journey of the exiles coming back home. So verse 2 says that as they came home, and you can imagine this, the people laughed and they sang as they traveled. They had been humiliated by their neighbors, and now those other nations are saying, wow, look what the Lord has done for them. Their God has come through for them. This is amazing. The creator of all whom Israel worships, their own God, has restored this nation. So verses 1 and 2 are about the past. And they're about the joy in the past. God released the captivity. He restored the good fortunes. And we belted out songs of joy. We were delirious with happiness and laughter. So then we go to verses 3 and 4, which I've titled Joy Now. My Hebrew commentary, meaning a commentary written by a Hebrew writer, describes this psalm as a psalm of disillusionment, a pathetic cry. My guess is you didn't read it that way or didn't hear it that way when Lori read it for us, that this is really a sad psalm of disappointment. Why is that so? Well, let's look at verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 says, God was wonderful to us. We are one happy people. So this is a present tense experience. We're experiencing joy now. It's not that they've lost their joy. The Lord has done great things for us, the NIV says, and we are filled with joy. My uh, sermon title comes from the message paraphrase, We Are One Happy People. Then why do these middle verses point to a situation that has changed so much that to at least one commentator, it reflects disillusionment? I want you to look at verse 4. It's a prayer that reads, Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the desert. So what's that saying? It's saying that our current situation is like that again of captivity. It could be restore, reverse our captivity again, Lord. Do it again. Restore means we've lost what we had before. And then that phrase like streams in the Negev or streams in the desert, depending on your translation. You don't have to have lived in Israel or the Sahara Desert to understand what this is talking about. If you've lived in or visited Arizona or Nevada or certain parts of California or Texas or Oklahoma, and you've seen stream beds that look for the world like a lot of water has been there, but they are dry as dust, you realize that there are seasonal rains, occasional rains, that will turn those stream beds into rushing floods. Right? This is what it's like in the Negev, which is the southern portion of Israel down in the desert. Most of the time, maybe 364 days out of the year, it is a dry desert. But what the psalmist is picturing here is our lives are currently like that. And we are asking God to restore us. This is our prayer to bring back life into the desert in the same way he brings life into a literal desert when uh, after uh, an entire year of drought. So this is how we know that this is a sad psalm. So now when you put verses 1 to 4 together, verses 1 to 2 are remembering a time when we used to be deliriously happy, but now we're in a wilderness. Now we're in a desert, and we are asking God to do it again, 
to do what he did before, that is our prayer. So verses 5 and 6 then talk about joy ahead. And that, these last two verses are about future joy. They're about anticipation. These are words of confidence and hope poetically framed to fit an agricultural society, a group of farmers. So, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. So, once again, the fact of sowing with tears means that right now, this is a tearful time for us. It's a sad time for us. It's a hopeless time for us. But we are looking forward to songs of joy. So, when you're a farmer, the storehouses are generally empty right before planting season, right? Or at least they're getting really low. So, nobody tends to write happy songs about planting that I can remember, We write happy songs about harvesting. So what this is picturing is right now we're in a time of our life where our resources are really low, but we are looking forward to with faith and confidence that there will be a time when our joy will bubble up again and where the harvest will come in and we will bring forth sheaves, carrying sheaves of grain, and that will be our joy. So the farmer plants, even if right now the circumstances are dire, the farmer plants looking forward to the harvest. So when we look at this psalm overall, we see a rather stubborn kind of joy, don't we? It's joy then, joy now, joy in the future. I really don't agree with the commentator who says it's a disillusioned psalm, but I do agree that the current circumstances of the psalmist that he's describing are very dire. But this psalmist refuses to give up on joy. When that phrase says, one happy people, it reminds me of our, trip, our first trip to Israel in 2011. And we had just finished touring the Yad Vashem, Yad Vashem, which is the Jewish Holocaust Museum. So just pause and let that sink in for a moment. There's no Holocaust Museum in the world more powerful than the one in Israel. So we've just come out of Yad Vashem, and the tour guide begins to tell us various, various stories about his personal experience, his grandparents who had died in the Holocaust and so forth. And then he said this. He said, Jewish festivals amount to this. They tried to kill us. They didn't kill us. Let's eat. And you're going like, why is this a time for a joke, right? But if the Jews are one happy people because they, fe- they have festivals all the time anyway. They party several times a year because we're still here. They tried to kill us. They didn't kill us. We're going to party, right? So the Jews tend to be, as a people, a happy people because they're not just focused on what happens now or in this situation. They are focused on the uh, the, the memory of what God did in the past and the anticipation of what God will do again. Memory and expectation in the psalm number 126 creates joy. And that's why the psalms of ascents help us to climb even higher. Most often, actually I'm going to switch to my PowerPoint here and show a couple of slides here. So, only it's not working. You might have to advance it for me in the back. Okay, so this is where I got my sermon title. Go ahead to the next one. Um, And Psalm 122, verse 1, most often in the Old Testament, this psalm, which again, Pastor Amy preached on last week, is a psalm that, uh, that notes that most often in the Old Testament, joy is about a place. So if you look up joy or rejoicing all the way through the Old Testament, not every time, But most of the time, it has to do with Jerusalem. 
It has to do with the temple. It has to do with going there or being there, with worshiping, with singing, with being together with God's people in a place. That's a New Testament, excuse me, that's an Old Testament theme about joy. Now, when we switch to the New Testament, there's a very different theme. Try that again. Did I do that or did you do that? I did it? Yay. All right, so there's a very different theme. So we, we start, Luke among the four Gospels is the Gospel of Joy. He uses the word more than any of the other Gospels. And Luke starts right out, even in chapter 1, but I've quoted here from chapter 2. I bring you good news, this is to the shepherds, that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. So for Luke, joy is not a place. You don't have to go find a place anymore to have joy. Joy is in a person, and that person is Jesus. And when Jesus comes into the world from that time on, everything changes, particularly about joy. Because if you know Jesus, if you have a relationship with Jesus, then you can have joy regardless of what place you are in. So this is why the New Testament can talk a whole lot more than the Old Testament does about joy in times of suffering. The New Testament letter that talks most about joy is Paul's letter to the Philippians. And where is Paul when he writes Philippians? He's in jail. He's in prison. And yet he talks more about joy there than any other book. Why? Because joy is not in a place. The circumstances don't define my joy. Joy is in a person. And when I know Jesus and I'm with other people who love Jesus, then I can experience joy. So for Paul and James and Peter and especially Jesus, uh, joy is found in a person, but it's particularly found in the person who is our salvation, past, present, and future. So the tenses come in again because we were saved, we are being saved, we will be saved, and so the Psalm uh, of Ascent, Psalm 126, is actually previewing the fact that in past, present, and future, we as believers can have joy as we think about the past and where we are and where we're going. So let me give you uh, your take-home for today. So typically, I will give you three or four take-home points at the end of a sermon. Today, I only have one, but there are four parts of it, okay? So I couldn't resist. But there's only one thing you really need to remember, and that is to distinguish between pleasure and joy. Distinguish between pleasure and joy. It's not that joy and pleasure are total opposites. So maybe we tend to think of it, or you might think that I'm suggesting, that pleasure and joy live in completely different circles. And that if you're happy, if you're feeling pleasure, then that can't be joy. Or if you're feeling joyful, then certainly don't smile about it and act like you're having fun, right? That's not what I mean to suggest. Instead, if you know what a Venn diagram is, this is it. There's a lot of overlap between pleasure and joy. But it's still important to distinguish between the two. So learn to distinguish between pleasure and joy. Why is it important? Because if you seek pleasure for its own end, you will not find joy. If you seek joy, then all of your pleasures will be more pleasurable, will be more joyful. So to, to give you a simple illustration of the difference between pleasure and joy, and again, to remind you that pleasure is not necessarily a bad thing, unless you're finding pleasure in wrong things, which is not the subject of my sermon, but let me give you this illustration. When you sit down at your Thanksgiving meal, your turkey is pleasure. 
But the gratitude that you express to God and one another is joy. All right? When you get to Christmas, opening presents is pleasure. Knowing Jesus as the reason we have Christmas is joy. So that's what I mean. Sometimes they overlap. They can even live in the same moment. But it's still important to understand the difference between pleasure and joy. And this is where I want to give you just briefly uh, four differences. Actually, let me read you this quote first. This, is in, this sermon was inspired by a quote in Eugene Peterson's book on the Psalms of Ascents. It's a wonderful book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Uh, I just love the title. I could live with the title for a while. This is a long obedience in the same direction. And then he goes through each of these 15 psalms. So in, that, in, this, in his book on uh, the Psalms of Ascents, he gets to 126, and this is what he says. I'm going to read it slowly because it's important. I want to sink it in. It's longer than most quotes I use in a sermon. In our culture, we try to get joy through entertainment. We pay someone to make jokes or tell stories or perform dramatic actions or sing songs. We buy the vitality of another's imagination to divert and enliven our own poor lives. And here's the key sentence in his quote. The enormous entertainment industry in America is a sign of the depletion of joy in our culture. The enormous entertainment industry in America is a sign of the depletion of joy in our culture. Society is a bored, gluttonous king employing a court jester to divert it after an overindulgent meal, end quote. So again, I'm not suggesting that entertainment is wrong. I'm simply suggesting that if we pursue pleasure for pleasure's sake, that's not the same thing as joy, and we need to understand the difference. So let me offer a few contrasts between pleasure and joy. First of all, pleasure is fleeting, while joy is timeless. So we think we've tapped into joy in, at a football game or a sexual encounter or a concert or even a church service that makes us feel better. We think we've tapped into joy, but it's pleasure in the moment or could be, and it will dissipate like the morning fog. When you need another fix, when you need more of the same thing or even a deeper experience of the same thing in order to keep the feeling going, that defines pleasure because pleasure is fleeting. Joy, on the other hand, is rooted in a deep sense of identity and contentment that comes in being in right relationship with God and with neighbor. That's why Jesus could say to his disciples on the night before he died, no one can take away your joy. Second, pleasure is physical while joy is spiritual. By physical, I mean those chemicals that race through your body when you're having a particularly pleasurable moment. Let me say it again. I don't mean to imply that those chemicals are wrong. That's a God-given thing. But if we're seeking pleasure for pleasure's sake, certainly we understand that those chemicals will dissipate. So um, when you're seeking what is only physical and that pleasure is gone, it's like permanently gone. But when it's a matter of your soul, you're tapping into the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love and what? Joy. So this is something the Holy Spirit does in you, and he can even take those pleasurable moments and turn them into true joy. Third, pleasure is personal while joy is shared. 
Now, I don't mean to imply that people don't experience pleasure in groups. They do. So think about going to a football game, and there are a lot of people in that stadium who are experiencing pleasure all at the same time. But each one of them measures pleasure on a very personal level, in a personal way, by a personal standard, which means there are probably a lot of that people in that stadium. Let me just pick on a game yesterday. So if you were at the Clemson Stadium, most people are experiencing joy, unless you're a Wake Forest fan. And then you're going like, this is not joy at all. So the reason you're experiencing joy is because in that moment, you are measuring the situation around you based on your personal response to it. Do I like the outcome or the result of this particular event? So pleasure is measured by whether I like it or not, whether I experience it personally or not, and we tend to, choose, if we choose relationships based on pleasure, then it really is ultimately a selfish thing. Like, does this person make me happy? While when you, or this group, while when you choose relationships based on joy, it's a question of how can I share the joy that I have with this person? It's why pleasure will ultimately ask the question, what can I keep for myself? And joy can become very generous because what I have inside of me needs to be shared with others. So pleasure is personal while joy is shared. And then finally, pleasure results in happiness while joy prompts worship. Again, I'm not saying happiness is bad, and I even love that phrase, we are one happy people. But why do people see believers as a happy people? Because they may see only the surface, but what's really there is much deeper, and it's worship. So pleasure is when the psalmist turns an event in the past, the return from exile, which you could interpret as saying, wow, were we lucky when the Persians took over because the Babylonians had deported all of us, and we got really lucky because we had nothing to do with it, but the Persians took over, and the Persians want people to go back home. Wow, what good fortune was that? Instead, the Jews say, the Lord has restored our fortune. So even in pleasures, when we give God the credit for the experience that we're having, then that pleasure can turn beyond happiness into joy. So I want to spend a couple minutes here as we close because this is one of the primary reasons that we worship. We live in a day when people are devaluing public worship increasingly. So there's a phrase in my world, and you've probably heard it, uh, don't preach to the choir. No offense against the choir. But what that means is when you're preaching to the choir, you're preaching to people who are already here. Well, in that metaphorical sense, you are all the choir today. So I'm not going to make you feel guilty for not coming to church because you're in church, right? But I want to I address this issue. Why do we actually come to church? And one of the main reasons is because of joy, because joy is shared and because joy leads us into worship. You see, you can experience pleasure in lots of different places, even God-related pleasure. You can experience somewhere else but it sustains and seals that joy. When you sit in the same pew with a lot of other Jesus lovers and Jesus followers, and then you bring your circumstances into worship with you, and sometimes those circumstances are filled with pleasure and wonderful moments, and you have somebody to share it with and somebody to credit it to, God did that, and you can do that in a group, and you can share that, you can belt out your songs and go like, wow, what a great God moment in my life. But even in the moments when you experience suffering and trial and sadness, 
And when there's a rough time going on in your relationship or in your life or in your job or whatever, you come here to worship where, again, you sit beside people in a pew or in a worship setting and you sing together and your faith is restored and even your joy is restored because you remember that joy is not just about this current moment. Joy is about memory and it's about expectation. It's about what God has done. It's about God, what, what God will do. And just because at my current moment in life, I'm not experiencing a lot of pressure, excuse me, pleasure, doesn't mean that I can't celebrate with others and actually have my joy restored in the community of faith as we worship together. So worship is when we surround ourselves with other people who believe, regardless of what their current circumstance is and regardless of what their memory or their expectation is, we bring ourselves together to remember and celebrate and anticipate what God has done and what God will do. So like pilgrims ascending to Jerusalem, they usually did it in groups. These were traveling songs for people to journey together up to Jerusalem. And like them, every time we gather here in worship, we are ascending again into the presence of God, acknowledging again his sovereignty and providence over our lives, the good things that he does for us. We Christians are sort of stubborn about turning any situation into a reason to celebrate and worship. There's always God, and he's the reason. One uh, 19th century Christian philosopher, Friedrich Schleiermacher, uh, in a commentary on the book of Philippians said, joy is our defiant nevertheless. Doesn't matter what's happening, whether there's pleasure or not, we're going to turn it into joy because of who we are and whose we are. Would you pray with me, please? And would you take a moment just to, in your own heart and mind, go back to that God moment that you shared with someone. Was it joy or was it pleasure? Because either one can lead you into worship. Name that as a gift from God and offer your worship and thanks to him. Lord, I'm aware that there are those in our congregation who are in the midst of a desert, in the midst of a wilderness, and there's been not a lot of pleasure lately. And I'm also aware that there are those for whom life right now is full of pleasurable moments, joyful moments. And it's, it's not possible for me as a preacher to speak to everyone's individual circumstance, but the Holy Spirit can. So take the words that we've shared today and bless those who need encouragement and blessing and hope and bless those who need a place to share the joy that you have given to them in their lives. We love you and thank you that we're yours. And we make this prayer in the name of Jesus who taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.